All right. Off we go. Hey, it's Andrew Merriweather. And this morning, I'm doing a ride-along with my wife, Larkin, as she heads out on her daily commute to work. Got a little snow in the car. Get the brush out. This only like there's any ice, so we should need the scraper. Like hundreds of thousands of her fellow Chicagoans, each morning she commutes to her job. In her case, it's a reverse commute out to the suburbs. And also like the majority of Chicago, she does so by car and not public transportation. So by car, it takes me about 45 minutes, uh, maybe 50 minutes to get home. The traffic's a little bit worse. On public transit, it would take me a little over an hour. 2020 census data shows that around 59% of folks living in the city commute by vehicle. And that number is over 86% for suburbanites. All of which is to say, we spend a lot of time in cars. See this guy, what are you doing? Oh my gosh, now it's, it's chaos. People are driving in the right lane that's not a lane. <laughs> and that means we have opinions about traffic. A lot of opinions. We just went through one of the most annoying lights on my drive. I don't understand it at all. There's two lights right next to each other, one after the other. So sometimes you'll wait at the first one. You can see the, the other one in front is green the whole time. And then right when your light turns green, the other one will turn red. So then you have to wait at both of them. Much like the weather, the latest headache construction project or your least favorite six-way intersection is classic small talk at a party. And we here at Curious City get questions all the time related to traffic. Things like, are Chicago's traffic lights on a timer to ease congestion? What goes into making a traffic report you hear on the radio? And why do highway construction projects shut down so many lanes for such a long stretch? Well, today on the show, we drill into those and more and go under the hood with the people who make their living thinking about traffic. That's next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. You might be familiar with the cliche that there are two seasons in Chicago, winter and construction. Whether it's repaving a residential street or a multi-year infrastructure project, work sites are ever present. Just last spring, for instance, the city announced the latest commuter nightmare. Kennedy Expressway commuters, buckle up. If you think traffic is bad now, get ready for the next, I hate to even say it, three years. Phase one of the latest Kennedy Expressway construction started in March of 2023. And during that time, the Illinois Department of Transportation closed off two of the four inbound lanes for an eight-mile stretch. That phase ended just before the new year. But until then, traffic came to a crawl. So I talked to someone overseeing the Kennedy Expressway rehab. His name is John Schumacher. I'm the Bureau Chief of Construction for District 1. We oversee all aspects of the construction projects in not only Cook County, but the five surrounding Collar counties as well. John has been working for IDOT for over 20 years and says that he knew he wanted to be a symbol engineer since he was a kid. 
I started by asking John about the lane closures. One listener wrote in asking why it stretched on for so long. Wouldn't it be more efficient to do two or three shorter stretches of closure so that traffic isn't crammed into two lanes for eight miles? John admitted that the closures were longer than normal, but he made two points about it. The first is that because they closed off a larger stretch of road, it allowed them to knock out a number of smaller projects, along with the essential bridge and pavement repairs. Things like painting bridges and replacing the lighting systems. And these are all jobs in, them, in their own that would have required extensive lane closures, but because we already had the lanes closed, we decided it was a perfect time to do kind of compile all those contracts at once. But even beyond the Kennedy project, it turns out that the length of a lane closure isn't the real culprit for backups and extended travel times. The biggest issue with any lane closure is that pinch point where you go from three lanes to two lanes, or in our case, four lanes to two lanes. And that's where that backup is going to happen. It's when everyone is merging over that you really see the congestion. According to John, once you're in the two-lane construction zone, the difference between, say, four miles and eight miles isn't all that significant. Case in point, when they first started the Kennedy Expressway project, they noticed that traffic was actually flowing well. Traffic was doing a really good job of staying in their lanes, and traffic was flowing a lot better than we had anticipated. But drivers didn't agree. And as construction dragged on... We started seeing more people, you know, hopping lanes from one to the other to try to get a couple cars ahead. And every time a car moves into that lane... They might not have to hit the brakes, but the person behind them does. And then, the, you know, the next 20 people behind them have to hit their brakes. And that just ripples through the whole corridor. So if you're truly concerned about getting through a construction zone as fast as possible, the best thing you can do is stay in your lane. One final note on this. John says that if they had chosen to split up the lane closures into shorter sections, it could have been a lot worse. We looked at a lot of different scenarios. We could have done one lane at a time. That would have extended the project by a factor of four. We could have split it up and instead of doing an eight-mile closure, do a four-mile closure. That would have doubled the length of the project. The other question we get a lot about road work was about construction workers. Listeners described moments where they were driving on the expressway but didn't see anybody working. John is sympathetic to this question and has even had the thought himself when passing a construction site. But he says if you looked at the work logs, you would see a different story. Throughout the summer, the contractor had anywhere between like 90 and 120 people working on the project every day. And typically they were working out there about 20 hours, 20 to 22 hours a day. Now that doesn't mean we had 120 people out there working 22 hours a day. That means throughout the course of the day, there was that many people. And even during those times when you aren't seeing a crew out there, there's almost always a reason for it. Some of our work is weather uh, sensitive. So if it's really hot, they will come in at work at night. Sometimes it's a space thing too. Like people would ask, well, why don't you have more crews out there? Well, the contractor only has so many bridge paving machines that they can use. And at some point you're on top of each other and, and you don't gain any efficiencies by having more people out there. John also says that you may not see workers because, well, they're out of sight. And that's because they're working underneath the bridge. Overall, John is very understanding of the public's gripes. He's a driver too, and doesn't enjoy waiting in traffic any more than the next person. But he says IDOT is trying to find the least painful option when it comes to construction. We had a meeting this time last year with over 50 people in it for, I think we were there for four hours, 
throwing every single possible idea out there of how to get the job done faster. Um, but I think that's the probably the biggest misconception is that there's that there's no forethought, there's no planning for road construction, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Fortunately for John, construction isn't the only part of Chicago traffic that draws ire from its residents. People also love to complain about traffic lights. Several of our listeners wanted to know if Chicago's lights were on timers, and if our lights were better or worse than other major cities. I also came across this Reddit thread where Chicagoans all shared their least favorite intersections in the city. This comment sums it up. Some of the street planning decisions in this city really baffle me. We have a vast, perfectly flat expense, ideal for our famous grid system that everybody loves and finds intuitive. So let's do that and pepper it with some turkey's feet every once in a while. Why? Because you, that's why. So to find out if our anonymous residents are just venting or if their complaints have some merit, I got in touch with someone from the Chicago Department of Transportation who is integral to designing Chicago's intersections. But before we meet him, a short primer on traffic lights. There are around 3,000 intersections with lights in Chicago. And there are two kinds of lights, fixed cycle time and actuated. Fixed cycle lights work on a timer. At any given intersection, the lights turn green, yellow, and red over a set amount of time anywhere from 45 to 120 seconds. Now, actuated lights, those react to traffic. And they do this by having sensors embedded in the pavement or through cameras overhead. Eventually, the queue gets long enough that it changes the light from red to green to release those cars. A number of posts on that Reddit thread I mentioned earlier were people expressing frustration about timed lights being poorly calibrated or wishing the lights were fully actuated. The idea being that a light that reacts to real-time traffic could be more effective than a fixed timer. In city, it is fixed time, and actually, uh, in my opinion, it's more pedestrian-friendly. That's Yodola Montezari with CDOT. He oversees the traffic signal department. I met up with Yodola at his office in The Loop to find out more about which types of lights are most common in Chicago and why. So when it comes to the city and downtown, most of the lights are timed, and Yodola contends that this is the best system. Because with the fully actuated signals, the walk sign does not come up for pedestrians, and they have to wait at the intersection and push the button and wait for the walk sign to come on and cross. But it's not only pedestrians who benefit, because time lights are also easier to sync with one another. Meaning, intersections can be coordinated so you don't get stuck at every light along the way. And it turns out that timed lights are far better at syncing than actuated lights. And the reason for that is you have more control. Because if, if you're using the same cycle length, that means you could control the start and stop at green. So when it comes to reducing congestion in the city, Chicago mostly has timed lights that are synchronized, which does about as good a job as possible at efficiently moving traffic. However, Yodola said there have been times where they've recalibrated a light based on driver feedback. I also chatted with Dr. P.S. Shriraj. He's the director of the Urban Transportation Center at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And he's got a little experiment you can try to see how well a light is working. If you're not able to clear the intersection through one cycle, then there may be something to look at. If you've waited there two cycle lengths, then you've definitely got something going on at the intersection. Now, Dr. Shiraj was quick to clarify that one instance of this happening is not a trend. 
But if you notice waiting multiple cycles over the course of, say, a couple of months, you might be onto something. Coming up, we switch gears and hear from someone who has dedicated his life to helping you, yes, you, avoid traffic. Stay with us. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Not all the questions we received about traffic in Chicago were complaints. In fact, one Chicagoan wrote in about something pretty familiar to me. Radio. This listener, his name is Connor, wanted to know how traffic reporters put together the broadcast you hear on somewhere like WBEZ or watch on your local TV station. Where does the raw data come from? Is there like some centralized database that people pull from? To take a peek behind the curtain, I talked to someone who has been in the traffic reporting business for a long time. My name is Mike Priest, and I am a traffic producer and reporter for Total Traffic and Weather Network here in Chicago. Mike has been reporting on Chicago traffic for decades and says that folks who become traffic producers are, let's say, unique individuals. We've joked around here at times that this is the Isle of Misfit Air Talent. Uh, <laughs> that just... You know, if if you're one of those square pegs that doesn't quite fit in one in one of the round holes, then 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 maybe you can do traffic. But not every professional broadcaster can do what Mike does. The job is chaotic. When I arrived at the studio where Mike works downtown, he took me to a small room. It had a computer with three monitors, a mixing console, and a microphone for doing traffic reports. As Mike fired up the computer, the screens filled with all sorts of information. And I suddenly heard this. That's the sound of police scanners. Dozens of them. All broadcasting real-time information from across Chicago. What I currently have up includes the Illinois Tollway Authority, troops of Illinois State Police. You also hear numerous suburbs, uh, county agencies, and feeds coming out of Northwest Indiana. So we're trying to cover as much of Chicagoland as much as possible all at once. It's kind of a cacophony. Like, did, did it take you a while to like get used to, I don't know, parsing out what's going on? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You spend your first couple of weeks doing this job absolutely lost in the wall of sound. I used to go to bed and I'd be trying to fall asleep, and I'd be hearing nonsense scanner calls and ringing phones in my ears. But now, after years of reporting, Mike can discern where information is coming from with remarkable precision. You get to hear certain cues. When you hear the computerized dispatchers, you listen to them long enough, you can get an idea of which computer voice is coming from which jurisdiction. Like, you hear that female robotic voice right now? That is Northwest Indiana. On top of that, Mike has also memorized the various 10 codes. This is shorthand dispatchers use to explain what's happened and what's needed. If you hear 1046 or 1053, that's a stalled vehicle. A 1050 is a crash. 
If it's a PI, then it's a crash with personal injuries. If you hear them call a 52 to the scene, that means they're asking for an ambulance. If you hear someone calling for a 1070, that means something is on fire. So not only does Mike have to pick out where all of these overlapping voices are coming from, but he also needs to figure out what they're saying that might be relevant to log or include in a report. It truly is something to behold. And of course, a scanner is just one of the sources of information that Mike is using. I would say we pull from dozens of sources. I have a couple hundred of state, county, municipal, transit agency, Twitter accounts that I follow that will all post information. We have the emails we pull from. We have county and dispatch agency websites that we pull from. So it really does come from all over. We have, um, like you can see right here, oh, we've got a crash. Mike also has access to cameras with views on various expressways and Lakeshore Drive. But what exactly does he do with all of this information? Well, along with creating his own traffic reports, Mike and his team are responsible for maintaining a system called TrafficNet. Essentially, it's a software that allows Mike to input entries for events like crashes or construction. Things that are going to impact major roads and interstates. This is where all our information goes in. It's also one of the channels by which all of our information gets disseminated to our affiliates. Basically, when Mike inputs information about what's going on on a particular stretch of road, that entry gets pushed to clients like radio and TV stations, where they might have their own traffic reporters who will do the broadcast. At WBEZ, for example, we get information directly from TrafficNet which is then read by one of our anchors. Traffic on southbound Route 53. It's getting by on the right shoulder past Lake Cook Road. There's a semi-crash. The inbound Kennedy has a crash at Monroe. So to answer Connor's question, in a way, Mike and his team are the central hub for traffic data. They take the disparate, raw information coming from countless sources and turn it into something drivers can understand. But I also wanted to know more about the creating of the reports themselves. How does Mike organize it, and what makes for an effective traffic report? He told me it depends on the client. Sometimes they want a short report, just the three most important things that have happened in 30 seconds or less. But other times, they can be as long as a minute and a half. If you've listened to one of those long reports, you know the rhythm of it as we go through the expressways and the tollways. And your listeners know what road they're on, and they know when their ears need to perk up and what they need to listen for at that portion of the report. And it sounds a little like this. Because the speed of your voice is going to pick up a little bit and you're going to move through the information a little more quickly. So then you start talking about how the inbound Edens is 25 minutes from Lake Cook to the junction. Outbound is only 17. Taking the Kennedy inbound, that is 46 minutes from O'Hare to downtown, 25 in from the junction. Going outbound, 29 minutes to Montrose. It's 52 out to O'Hare. There's a stall blocking the left lane at Harlem. And so on like that. That was amazing. I I was mesmerized. None of that was actually true, and it will be completely irrelevant whenever this airs. Curious City is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. The show is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault. Maggie Civit is the digital and engagement producer. Susie Ahn is our editor. I'm Andrew Merriweather. Thanks for listening.
Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.